You're listening to the Volleyball by Design podcast. Today, we have former pro middle blocker Michael Amoroso, who's coming on to discuss everything middle blocking and middle attacking. It's an episode you don't want to miss. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Coach Brian Singh, and after 11 years coaching competitive volleyball and as a head coach of a college team, I've become obsessed with helping athletes and coaches improve their knowledge and skills of the game by teaching them how to train efficiently and effectively to ultimately reach their volleyball goals. I've created the Volleyball by Design podcast to give you simple, actionable, step-by-step strategies so you can get clarity and apply what you learn right away. This is the Volleyball by Design podcast. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to episode 32 of the Volleyball by Design podcast. Hope you guys are doing well this week. Um, You know, we're we're getting, we're middle of January. Uh, I know around the world, things are going crazy. We have COVID that's hitting. Uh, Clubs are unfortunately not being able to play. And then in in many parts of the world, you are playing, but with uh, certain restrictions. So, you know, I appreciate uh, everyone tuning in to learn more about volleyball, and we do have a great episode for you today. Uh, but before we get into that, I just want to uh, thank my listeners. So if you're a regular listener, thank you so much for tuning in yeah, as usual. we got another great one for you today. And if you are a new listener, welcome to the pod. Thanks you so much for jo- joining in. You got a, got a lot of episodes to get caught up on 31 to be exact, but uh, there are some good ones, so hopefully you get some value out of it. Um, and if you are, if you have been a listener and you do like what you hear and like this episode that you're about to hear, do me a favor, uh, a quick review on, on uh, iTunes, Apple, um, or wherever you're listening to on, um, you know, five stars, if, if you're feeling generous, I mean, give me a review. Let me know what you think about the pie. You know, I always try to make these episodes uh, educational and really to cater to what you guys want to hear out in the world. We're in a ton of different countries all around the world. So uh, I'd like to hear from you guys. So let me know. You can reach out to me. Um, Leave the review or just hit me up on Instagram, right? Brian Singh underscore Coach B as usual. But let's get into today's episode. Today, we have a special guest. Um, today, we have Michael Amoroso. He was, uh, he's a former pro uh, player. He played out in Greece and he played out in Germany. Um, he's a former OUA champion. For those of you that don't know, uh, Ontario is a, is a province in Canada. And he played at Queen's University where he was an OUA champion, uh, two-time OUA champion, three-time OUA all-star. He also played on the junior national team, wealth of knowledge, um, all the way from, you know, from high school, all the way to, uh, to university to pro. And then now he is a very experienced coach. Um, he's a team Ontario coach, he coached the regional team. Uh, he has been part of many programs. Madawaska is one of them and really just an overall volleyball, uh, genius mind iq whatever you want to call it the guy knows what he's doing i'll tell you that um i've actually had the honor of bringing him into um, our practices uh, when i used to coach club and just just listening to him talk for like five minutes you 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 gain so much simplicity and knowledge of how the game works and how it is and it's really cool to listen to all the volleyball minds around the world especially getting that pro experience and high level experience to be brought into your gym so the first time on the show we have a middle blocker middle blocker we haven't had a middle blocker on the show yet so i'm so excited to bring a middle blocker and one of the best at it at that michael amoroso michael what's up man thanks so much for joining me today hey i appreciate the call and i appreciate the opportunity to uh to talk middle so i'm all for it great man well i always like to start off with this um so let's let's hear your volleyball story man like what's your volleyball story how did you grow to, to get from where you are to the pros and coaching yeah, so that's my origin story. Uh, I would I would start 
uh, in kind of sophomore year, junior year of high school, uh, which would be grade 10, grade 11. Uh, so I'm you know, 16 years old, grown tall, no meat on the bones. Um, I've lost all coordination. And the sports that I loved, which were soccer, uh, basketball, baseball, uh, I'm not quite as good at them as I used to, I used to be. And, um, and I didn't have... I didn't have the same drive in those sports or frankly, the same skill. So I was kind of at, in this kind of uh, this, this early life crisis in terms of sport. I'm an athlete. What do I have? What am I going to do? I, I, was, I, I stumbled my way onto a high school volleyball team and was discovered by Mark Ainsworth, who's a legendary coach in the Scarborough, um, kind of a suburb of Toronto uh, area. Uh, he, he found me in a high school gym and, and said, well, you're not very good right now, but you have some great qualities and we think you could be. And this was 16 years old. So for, for athletes, pretty much in, 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 in every sport, uh, but specifically volleyball, uh, there's, there's a lot of room in your life to play a lot of different sports and try a lot of different things before you, before you hone in on it. And, and if, if you're 13, 14, 15 years old, I hear all the time athletes were 14 years old saying, is it too late for me to get started? I feel like I missed out on some great opportunity. Well, as long as you were living and being active and playing games, doing other things, climbing, you know, climbing the monkey bars and playing tag with your friends, playing different sports, you're good. Um, so I, I, I jumped in as far and away the worst player on a very high performing team. I spent almost the entire first year uh, doing lines uh, on the corner of the court uh, in in uh, there would there would be some particular tournaments where I wouldn't I, w I wouldn't touch the court at all. I just I'd spend the entire day either on the lines or on the bench. Which for me at that point, being being able to be on the bench with my teammates, at least I had the social aspect. When I was on the lines, it was kind of just there by myself. Um, but I watched a lot, learned a lot about the game. Uh, but I I picked it up quite quickly. So you know, seven months from that point, I was selected to be part of a provincial team program. Uh, which was, for my position, still behind the two players that I played club volleyball with. And that, that was when I started to appreciate that I had a lot of good players and good coaches around me, uh, which I, I attribute everything to. Uh, the year after, I made the provincial team again uh, and was recruited to play volleyball at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Uh, the year after that, I, I was playing impactful minutes for the university and I made the junior national team for the first time. Uh, and, and around that point, Volleyball became life's first profession uh, and the most important thing for me. So um, I, was, I, I, was, I was still a student athlete. I, I worked security at the, at the bars to make extra money to be able to kind of live. But volleyball was 100% the goal. I um, had, had an, an awesome career in university. We had a lot of great team successes and some friends that uh, I, I still keep to this day. And... I was um, I was approached by I was, I was approached by an agent with 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 some opportunities to pursue the sport at the next level and I took them so I I had I had the opportunity to play in Sweden to play in Athens and Greece and uh, and then to play in Germany and well, halfway through the, the season in Germany I decided my volleyball path was was best pursued from that point on back in Canada and I. I wasn't quite at the top of the game I could get to, but 
I thought the trade-off was more worth it to get home and start doing the things that I was really passionate about that, that point, which was really coaching and working with kids. And just be closer to family, start, start my, my next phase of life. So I moved home in 2015. And then since then, I've been coaching, coaching with club teams. I've coached with, coached with a provincial team, coached with a regional high-performance team. Um, I've driven you know, three to four hours in every direction to work with kids in small communities. Uh, I started a company that runs camps and, uh, and, and clinics in small communities around the province. I've, I've, I've now, now been two plus years with the Ontario Volleyball Association's Board of Directors, and, and, I, and I'm now getting to impact the game from a policy side and support the staff that, that kind of that govern the, the sport in our province. And uh, I still work with uh, LT Volley, which is a professional volleyball agency based in Holland. I still, still work with the agency recruiting Canadian players. And, uh, and, and kind of helping mentor them through their professional careers. And that's, that's now where my passion of the game lies, is being off the court, lights are off me, but how can I get you better when the lights are on you? Whether that's at the professional level, which is more of like kind of just supporting them and mentoring them through what that path looks like, having gone through it myself, whether it's uh, club age athletes just trying to make good decisions in their lives, and, um, and understand how much bigger life can be than volleyball and how amazing life can be if you use what you have in volleyball to help the rest of it, as opposed to, you know, life or death on your passing platform, or like the most important thing in the world is how your hands look when the ball comes out of your hand. Well, I would say being a good person is more important than how the ball looks when it comes out of your hands. So let's put more attention on that. Um, but yeah, that's my origin story. That's where I'm at. And now, now I'm here onwards and upwards. That's great, man. Uh, you know, I like, I like the fact that when you first got into the game, um, you accepted the fact that you would not get to play right away. Like you did the lines, you sat on the bench and you, you accepted that because you wanted to learn and get better. And you, you, you put the, like you kind of put in your dues, which I hope young players that are listening to this, if, if you don't get the opportunity, if you go to a tournament and you don't get the opportunity to play. It's not the end of the world because you have to remember you're there to support your teammates. You're there to be part of a team and still get better as an individual so that you get the opportunity maybe one day to step on that court. But it's all about the team. You got to think team first. It's not about me. It's about the team. And the, and, and the one thing, too, that I want to note for my listeners, a lot, a lot of our listeners know um, Dane and Kofi Gemma who is a Canadian who played volleyball at UCLA. A lot of our listeners know Shawan Vernon Evans. And these two individuals were mentored by Michael and they play, they played, well, Danon played at the, at the highest level uh, in the U S and Shawan is potentially um, the, the, the face of Canada volleyball potentially um, as of going, going forward. So, um, so you've, you've, you've done a great job so far of mentoring athletes and I can't even imagine what type of work you do with athletes that are going to be playing pro and going there. So, and I like what you said, good people first. Yeah. hundred percent. 100% good people. We're in the, we're in the business of changing lives. That's why I'll say we're in the business of changing lives. And if we can do that, I mean, that, at the end of the day, that's, that's the goal. So thank you for that story. Which is one, one thing I won't, I certainly won't take uh, any credit for uh, Dan Chiba or Shawan Evans. I, I know, I know, but he's still a part of it. I had the luxury and the honor to be, uh, to be part of, to be, to be a small part of their youth volleyball lives. And those are two 
incredible individuals that are, that are pursuing two things right now at the highest levels in the world, one being music, one being sports. And it's just been a pleasure to watch and follow. So yeah, man. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, hundred percent. Okay. Let's talk middle middle position. All right. So, uh, so here's a situation for you walk into a gym that you have a ton of players that want to be middles that want to train to be middles. What are you telling them? How are you training the middle position? Go. <laughs> yeah. All right. Broad, uh, broad strokes. A loaded so, question. It's open-ended question. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So right, right off the bat, the first thing I want to find out for them is have, have, have they trained to play volleyball before? Because if they, haven't, if they haven't trained to play volleyball before, I've probably got a couple other things to check off first. But now, if, if you've played volleyball, if you have played, uh, and, I, and, and I would actually broaden it to if you've played indoor volleyball if you, or if you've played two-person beach volleyball, um, then you, you have the majority of the hard skills that you need to be able to, play, to, be, able to be a really elite middle blocker. Um, people talk about, well, you're blocking from the middle of the court, so you have to look in both directions. Well, if you're blocking on the right side of the court, you're only looking in front of you or to the left. If, you, if you're blocking on the left side of the court, you're only looking in front of you or to the right. But if you've done either of those, or if you've done both of those, when you're in the middle, well, you, now you just have two directions to look. And at the end of the day, the ball only comes from the same one spot, which is your setter or whoever the second contact player is. So as soon as you know that ball isn't coming over the net, that's where you're attending to anyways, regardless of what position you're in. If you're a defender in zone one, six, or five, once you know the ball's not going over the net, you're also looking at the setter. They're, they're your source of information. So from a blocking perspective, the middle blocker position isn't so different from the other positions. It's just, this is where my information comes from. This is where the ball goes to. Whereas other positions might be able to find a spot if the ball goes in one way, you follow the ball. Ball goes this way, I'm going to. Ball goes that way, I'm going to. Ball goes up, I go up. Um, from an attacking perspective, get to the place where you and you and your setter have planned for the ball to be. That's attacking in the, in, in the middle and like in the broadest strokes. If you've played volleyball at any level, you can do that. We might ask you to come faster. We might ask you to go to a location you haven't been to before, but you've done that before. You can, you can do that. Serving is still serving. No, no one's asking you to change your serve because you're a middle blocker. Some coaches might ask you to change where you serve from. So if, if you're being asked to defend in zone five, they might ask you to serve from zone five. However, uh, it's more important to have your best serve and then run a little bit faster to get to your zone than it is to serve based on where you're going to end up defending. So, but still serving, still serving. Um, you're still going to have to second ball set, which, um, which every match, a middle blocker will have at least one or two opportunities to impact the game with their ball control skills, whether that's second ball setting, defending, um, a ball is played over the net that needs to be now put into system um, uh, on, on situations where you can't get up in the block and the, and the opposing team's attacker tips the ball and you pick it up. Uh, th those are all things you're going to have to do anyways. So if a player walks into my gym and, sa and says, I want to train the middle, middle blocker position, let's get started. First thing I want to know is, have you played volleyball? And if you have, you probably have most of what you are, we already need. So we can start, we can start there. Um, and then, and then the next thing I want to look at is what does your athletic position look like when you play? And, uh, and often I find that the younger the athlete, 
the more likely they have uh, this image in their mind of like five or six different athletic positions for how they play the games. So they'll say, well, when I pass, I look like this. When I defend, I look like this. And it often gets like a lot lower, almost more of a squat position. As, uh, as a great mentor of mine, Dustin Reed says, it looks like an emergency in the woods situation. Um, or when they're blocking, they stand up or straight. Uh, when like in, in reality, you should have pretty much just one athletic position that is your most comfortable athletic position for most sports that you play. So if, you, if you've played basketball, your defensive position in basketball shouldn't be that far off from how you prepare for serve receive. You should, your, legs are your legs are probably going to be a little bit bent. You're going to be, you're, you're going to be stable. So, you're, so, so, so your feet will probably be at least, at least shoulder width apart, but in most cases wider than shoulder width apart. Um, you are able to move quickly as opposed to pushing heavy. Like I don't need to be squatting at 90 degrees because no one's asking me to back squat 400 pounds. I'm being asked to move in a direction and pass a ball that weighs, I don't know, five pounds. So my, my athletic position across most sports and most positions in volleyball should be pretty similar. So my defensive position, my passing position, and how I prep for as a, as a blocker at the net should pretty much be in the same spot. So usually when I start training middle blockers, um, I start with that before anything and getting them to be comfortable with, this is how you're most athletic to move on the court. And if you can, if you can understand what that position looks like, automatically I've made you better at every single skill. This is, this is you. This is your good position. I like that. I, I really do like that because, and you kind of identified something that um, I I talk about as well, where every athlete's different. There's no one set fit all. So every athlete's going to have a different, comfortable athletic position that will maximize their ability to be efficient. And yeah, like keep going, man. That hundred <laughs> percent. So it, it's, uh, it's, I go, and I'll, I'll reference the defensive position. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll preface this with, uh, I've, I've watched uh, either either live or on video of some of the most talented players uh, in, in the world play. And, and you can find a long list of instances where players do something that, uh, that, that might count as an exception to that rule. And I'll tell every athlete this. If you are playing at the highest levels in the world and you are being effective and efficient at it, then you don't need to listen to me on this podcast telling you what your best body position is to reach those highest levels because you're there. So you should, you should take, take a second every single day and pat yourself on the back for the hard work that you've done to get there. And then as, as most top athletes do, you get right back into the gym and you get back, you get back in the lab and you put your work in. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll reference Jesse Niles was one of my favorite. Um, we've, we, we work together as well um, pro professionally, but she's one of my favorite Libros to watch. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with Jesse Niles, um, um, elite player coming out of Canada. She's, uh, she, she's been our national team starting Libero for quite some time. Um, and, uh, and, and her, her initial defensive position when, when the setter is touching the ball is quite low. She's quite low to the ground. Um, and, and yet as soon as the setter releases the ball to transition to any other zone, she is so amazingly talented that she immediately gets back to this 
stable defensive position. It's exactly what I described, which is legs are a little bit bent, her base is wide, um, her, movements are, her movements are fluid from that position, and she's ready to either defend something hard, turn and chase a ball that goes off the block, move forward or laterally in any direction to pick up an off-speed ball. Um, so she would be an example of somebody that, that deviates from that. If you're the starting libero on a national team, uh, I'll, leave your, I'll leave your national team coach to be the one who's going to criticize what your body position looks like. But um, on, on mass, you want to be in a position that, uh, Brian, just as you mentioned, fits you, that's comfortable for you, and that makes you feel like you can do anything as athletically as you possibly can. And if a coach is trying to move you into a position that aesthetically looks like it's going to be more effective, but you don't feel as effective in that position, then it is really important that you relay that information of, I don't feel like I can move as quickly out of this position. Or I don't feel like I am as agile in this position. Now, that might mean that you need to, you need more work in the gym to strengthen certain muscle groups to allow you to be more effective to do that. But what it means in terms of volleyball while you're on the court is this isn't going to make me as good as a kid. And your coach needs to hear that feedback from you because they can't put yourself, they, they can't put themselves in your head. They can't feel what you feel. So right off the bat, I always talk about athletic position more than anything. Um, when, uh, when I look at middle blockers, the, uh, the men's and the women's game at the highest levels, middle blockers control on-court blocking tactics and schemes. I and mean, actually, but before I jump into this, uh, Brian, is there something you wanted to add? I got you on video, so I saw your hand move. No, no, I'm just making notes as you as you type. So I got for, as you mentioned, so I got first step athletic position, and yeah, uh, and it's all awesome. you. <laughs> awesome. Okay, I I, I recognize uh, that I, I can I can. I can get going when you give me opportunities to talk. So I uh, hope everybody's ready to listen. But, um, so at the highest level, middle blockers control on, on court blocking schemes. And there's, there's a couple, couple reasons for that. One, um, one, you block every zone, which no, no other position does. Um, two, uh, two, two your, your success is quite often measured the most on that. So not only are you there the most, but what people value them value you the most for, at least in terms of the stat sheet, in terms of like a you know, team construct, program construct, I'll, I'll add there are exceptions. There are incredible elite attacking middle blockers who people look, look to the attack first. Um, but on mass, uh, middle blocker position, the name has it right in there. You're controlling the net. Middle blockers also have the amazing benefit of every three rotations, grabbing a seat on the bench and chatting with your staff off court about how to improve the next three rotations you come in. So it's actually a lot, a lot like a pitcher in baseball or a quarterback in football. So if anybody's a fan of NFL football, when quarterbacks get off the court, or sorry, when, when quarterbacks get, get off the field, especially after they've thrown an interception, first thing they do is they hit the bench next to their backup quarterback and their offensive coordinator They've got the iPad out and they're looking, what happened here? What are they doing that I need to adjust to and work with that'll help me best when I'm back on the court? Now in football, you have offensive side of the ball and defensive side of the ball. But for middle blockers, it's very much the same thing. At the highest levels, if I'm on the bench 
and I'm watching the game for the rotations I'm not on the court, I'm a fan. I'm not watching for tactical information because the ta any tactical information I get from the court is actually going to skew my perspective of how the game looks when, for my rotations. My three rotations look nothing like the three rotations that are on the court. So if I watch the court tactically when I'm off the court, I may say, geez, this, this outside hitter is really going off. I'm going to I'm gonna have to do some stuff to stop him. Or, wow, that middle blocker is scoring like crazy. Or, hey, anytime the setter does this, they send the ball back to the opposite. But yeah, the setter does that when they're in zone two or three. But when you face them, they're in zones four, five, and six. That's not the information that's going to help you for your rotations. You can relay that information to your partner middle blocker and say, this is what I saw. And then they'll get that feedback from the bench as well for their off rotations. But what you need to know when you're off is what's happening when I'm on, because that's when I'm going to be back. And those are the rotations that are relevant to me. So when you're watching the game off the court as a middle blocker, if you're watching the game, you're a fan and, and you're supporting your team and you're staying ready to get back in. But what's most important is any, any blocking adjustments or scheme adjustments that, or, or any feedback you can get from your coaches and your, 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 your backup player or whoever the next player is, that's the most important thing you can get when you're off the court coming onto the court. So that kind of plays into middle blockers' ability to control the blocking scheme. Um, and now, uh, just coming back to the block, I, I touched on it earlier. So um, where your hands are when the ball crosses the net as a middle blocker, is the most important thing. And I'll add an asterisk to that would be as long as your defenders know what you're trying to do. So I'll start, I, the, the first opportunity the ball has to cross the net, which comes back to your ability to control the net, the first opportunity the ball has to cross the net would be an overpass. So tough serve from your side, successful serve, causes the other team's first contact to send the ball over the net. Right off the bat, that's, that's, your, that's your priority. Now, how you and the other blockers or the players behind you navigate that, that's also part of your plan. You cover the most area of the court in the, in the front, and also your position is closest to usually where passers are trying to pass the ball. So a lot of those fall to you. But at the same time, it's on you to be, to have the other players in the front row on the same page. If the ball comes over, which a lot of athletes and coaches will see now internationally, are we swinging on it, or should I get ready to should I get ready to attack because you're going to set that overpass to me, right off the bat? Which areas of the of the net are we covering? If the ball's on my right shoulder, I I want to hit it. Uh, if you're left-handed, you might want to hit it. What's better for the success of the team here? I hit it, you hit it, you set it, I get back and get ready to hit it. Um, if the ball goes over our heads. Who's, who's filling in behind us? What are we doing with it? If it's inside the attack line, am I backing up and volleying it? And then, and then am I attacking? So that's the first opportunity for the ball across the net. Second opportunity is if you have a front row setter. Um, so front row setter, the ball's coming over. How are we handling that threat? Some teams, it's a small threat. For some teams or some setters, that's a significant threat. And if anybody says, well, if they dump, we'll let them score, well, if at the end of the game, the stat sheet shows eight, nine, 10 points on 12 tries, 
That is an incredibly efficient attacker that you failed to identify. That's on you. There's no, oh, we'll let them have that. There's no, there, every point in volleyball carries equal weight and equal value at the end of the game. And there is no point that's worth giving up. The only, the only, the only thing I would add to that is if the potential to score more points is greater, that's the only time. But in terms of defending something coming over the net, there's not one single point that's worth giving up. Block everything, stop everything if you can. Stop everything, block everything, defend everything. So, so what this letter does in terms of their, their attack, that's not, well, that's that blocker's problem. No, you're, you run the show. You are the middle blocker. How are we defending that for the three rotations they're up? Or at least for the rotations that I'm up and they're up as well. And then after that, as to where the ball goes across the net, um, when in doubt, if you have more things to handle than you think you can, block the player closest to you. So as a middle blocker, if you are perfectly in system and the highest, and, and the highest threat level is the middle blocker ahead of you, this is something I struggled with a lot actually in my university career. Um, I, I didn't want to give credit to opposing teams middle blockers where I didn't think credit was due so I didn't want to commit block I wanted to be this like all-seeing altruistic like read blocker that never gave any other middle blocker the the respect of me commit blocking on them and trying to stop them entirely because I felt like if I if I just try to get my hands on the ball that you're attacking that's enough for you because I don't think you're that good, frankly. This was, uh, th this was during my swelled head days, uh, which not, not to say that those days are gone, but it's definitely, it's been deflated a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to give the opposing team's middle blocker the respect of a committed block and leave my blockers on the wings alone. And in reality, I need to stop that matchup or manage that matchup before I manage anybody else's matchup. I might run the show on blocking, but my outside hitter, my position four blocker, they are going to be the closest to the other team's position two blocker. That's their blocking matchup. I'm, I want to be there as often as I possibly can, but that's their blocking matchup. The zone two blocker on my side of the net, managing the other team's position four blocker, their, their hands are the closest to that player's attack. That's their matchup. I try to close to and take away the largest part of the court that I can, but that's still their matchup. The middle blocker and the pipe coming behind, so, the, so, all, so zone three offense coming out of the middle, that's my matchup. Those guys can't take that matchup for me. And if, and if the middle or the pipe on the far side of the court are scoring at a really high level, I can talk, I can say whatever I want about we should serve tougher or I need help blocker. What I'm asking for is support for something that's my responsibility. So right, right off the bat, you need to manage your zone and your area first. And where your hands are over the net is more important than where everything else is. So from a, from a, from a functionality perspective, and I, I won't go too far down how, how the body moves because frankly, it's not my area of expertise. But at the end of the day, I don't block walls with my feet. What I do with my feet might help. What I do with my hips might help. What I do with my torso might help. 
And he, even if you're, even if you're jumping, you know, 370, 12 foot something, and your chest is above the net, you're not going to get a lot of blocks with it. You will get blocks. The vast majority of your blocks you will get from your elbow to the tip of your fingers. That's where you're getting your touches, no matter how high you jump. What's happening from your elbow to the tip of your fingers and where, where your hands are orienting, how your hands are in relation to what you're protecting and where you want the ball to go, that's most important. There's no clear-cut rule of when I jump, press my arms to this particular location. Well, if I, if I jump in position two and I point my hands to zone six, I'm reaching to the left of my body. And my attacker is attacking on the right side of my body. So if my attacker is coming from my right and I'm blocking, pointing my hands to my left, are my hands in the best position to stop that player? Well, if they swing to my left, then probably. But, but I don't know what they're going to do until they do it. And I want to put myself in the best position to protect everything behind me. So the court's not to my left. The court's behind me and to my left. It's also a little bit to my right. I've got a blocker to my right, and they're covering that part. But there's no cut and dried rule or, or kind of clear-cut rule of when you jump, put your hands here, and that will make you a good blocker. You actually have to make a choice. Where are my hands going? How, is, how are my hands oriented in relation to this attacker? And I, and I, and I, I couldn't tell you, well, when, when you're blocking to the left, push your hands to the left, because it's not as simple as that as well. Um, the easiest comparable to this would be shoot layups in basketball or shoot Tim Duncan off glass shots from, from 5, 8, 10, 15 feet away. And look at the different angles the ball hits the backboard and how it, re and how it results in getting the ball into the, into the net. Those angles are very, very similar to the angles you have to work with as a blocker. So if, if I told you, hit the same spot on that backboard, no matter where you're shooting from, you would have a very, very low shooting percentage. If you move an inch or you move a foot, but you got a little bit more power, a little less power, all your angles change. It's the exact same thing with blocking. Uh, and the, the unfortunate thing is that it's a lot easier to learn when you have rules. The rules are only helpful if they work. So if I tell you, and, and, and this was something that for a lot of my years as a young blocker, I felt like, well, if I jump the highest up I can and push my arms as far over the net as I can, that makes me a great blocker. Well, it looks great in pictures. It looks really impressive. People think it's cool that you jump high and you're the only one scratching your head when you're looking at the stat sheet and you have the blocks because if you're trying to jump high and look good for pitchers, you weren't trying to block balls. They're, they're two different things. Um, I've given a lot of information in a short period of time. I can, I can keep going. I've got more, but I, I'm going to take a pause for water. And if you have any, yeah, no, first of all, I, I'm, I'm taking notes, by the way, when you see me typing, I'm, I'm taking notes because it's great stuff. So I did have a question before you continue. Um, you talked about, I like how you said, you know, block the block the player that's closer to you in the middle and your, your job as a middle blocker is to block the position right across the net from you. So does that mean that you are an advocate of if the other team's in system, you want your middle blocker to commit to the other middle? That's a great question. Um, so... If the other team is in system and their and their zone three offense is a legitimate threat, if you want to make that your top priority, right away, that's not an in-the-moment decision. 
you, you, if that's going to be your number one top priority and you're going to commit to that, everybody else on your team should already know it. Right. The blocker to my left and the blocker to my right can do amazing things. They can, act, they can actually be significantly better blockers if they know I'm not coming. If they know I'm not coming, uh, if I'm blocking on the left side of the front court in position four, if they know their middle blocker is not coming, if the ball's set inside, the ball's set outside, if they want to change their hands at the last minute, they don't need to think about where I am or whether I'm going to get in the way of their strategy. They can just do it. Right. The ball set inside. If they want to line up with the attacker, they want to show one thing and do the other. Um, for example, if you were if you were to watch still photos or slow motion of the best players in the world blocking, you'll often see hands in all different directions. And people people look at the snapshot and say, "Wow, that's an interesting block because you know the Cuban international player has their chest over the net and both arms are almost like in a YMCA position over their head." But when the ball crosses the net, those hands are exactly covering the zone they want to be covered. At that level, they're doing that because they know the attacker on the other side will be able to beat them if they show their cards too early. They can't show them where their hands are going to finish. Because if they show where their hands are going to finish before the other player starts their attack, well, the other player will just change how they attack. They'll use the hands the same way you could use a backboard. Right. They'll use the hands, they'll abuse the hands. And the ball in an elite attacker's hands is significantly more impactful than any position you can put your hands. If I put my hands somewhere, the best attackers in the world will find the spot they can score off them, and I can't change that. So coming back to your question about committing, committing in the middle, uh, commit in the middle if that's a plan and if you know why you're doing it. And that's usually, a communicate, that's usually communicated between, between the coaching staff and your, and your middle blocker before the game's even been started, these are some situations where we're going to commit. In these particular rotations, if the ball is perfect, we are going to commit. Um, this player is having a lot of success. We are going to commit here. And if you look across the average set of volleyball in collegiate, most middle blockers I, at, the, at the highest elite level, between one and two blocks a set is elite. That is incredibly elite. So how you get those blocks or where you get those blocks, um, if, if stopping the opposing team's middle blocker, clear cut gets you one of those blocks, right off the bat, you've put yourself in the elite block scoring position. And the trade-off for that is that you don't get to help somebody else score on their blocks, which that's a great, great trade-off. Um, commit blocking gets hairy when there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's, ah, I thought they were going to get the ball. Okay, well, like, the right side blocker thought that their player was going to get the ball, and then when they didn't, they had to do something different to support everything else that was going on. And if, if blockers in other positions jumped wherever they thought the ball was going to go and didn't manage their assignment, our defenders would be left in a really tough spot, and it's the same thing in the middle. So it really just comes back down to what, what's our plan and why are we doing this? If your plan is to stop the opposing team's middle blocker, and I'll reference uh, the, the former athlete of yours, Dan and Gima, who played, played with UCLA. He was one of, one of the most dominant, dominant middle attackers that we've seen in, in North America in a long time. Uh, 
if you're committing to stopping this player, is that going to give you the result that you want? Well, in Dane's case, I don't know if it was. I don't know how many opposing teams designed a commit block system to stop him that actually worked. Now, now if you if you want to watch the um, uh, Liznak, the, uh, the 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 Serbian international middle blocker playing against Russia or playing against uh, playing playing against. Uh, Simone, the Cuban middle blockers team in Italy, if you want to watch those two teams face off, well, Simone could stop Liznak and Liznak could stop Simone. At that level, a commit block's actually going to move the needle. So, so when, you, when you do tactically make these choices, you are impacting the game and you can score points on the block. But um, I wouldn't say it's a, it's, a, it's a clear-cut rule of like, we always commit or we don't commit. If you're going to commit block, everybody else should know that you're doing it, which will help them be better defenders, be better blockers, because they, because they know you're taking this part and nothing else. If you have a really dominant middle and pipe combination behind, you might want to start a little more loaded so that you're slow closing to the outsides, probably too slow closing to the outsides, but able to jump higher against your zone three attackers which is also, I would call that a form of committing. You're not committing to a player, but you're committing to a zone. If I'm planning, if the only thing I'm ready to do is the second the setter sets the ball, I either jump straight up or I wait a quarter of a second and then jump straight up, I'm committing to a zone. That's another type of commit. I haven't left my feet yet, but I'm committing to this is where I'm going to be. And if the ball goes out of direction, well, I'm slow there. Um, so, yeah, a little bit long-winded, but... Uh, no. No, great answer. I, I, I like commit blocking uh, if everyone's on the same page of it and you know why you're doing it, not just because you don't want to get your feelings hurt and get a couple more a couple, couple more quick squirt on you. Yeah, no, no, it's a great point. Um, like we, we pra- at our level, we, we practice it. Like when they get the scouting report, uh, when our players get the scouting report uh, like a couple of days prior to the match, and then when we go over it in, in, um, in pregame and so forth, like we'll, we'll map it out. Like, okay, we're committing on this rotation to this middle. We're not on this. Like we, we kind of have an idea. And then as the game goes, if things change, we can adjust accordingly. But uh, you're right. Like we do it pregame uh, beforehand. So our, our whole team is on the same page. Um, so I, I definitely think that helps. Uh, okay. So, so far we've talked about athletic position we've talked about blocking every zone worrying about your three rotations hand positioning um blocking commit blocking in terms of your matchups and stuff like that uh what's next yeah um one 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 quick uh quick excerpt of uh last excerpt on blocking which i I learned this from excuse me uh, jonas fontesen he's uh the, the former women's national team coach in Sweden, uh, coached professionally in women's volleyball in Sweden, but also coached men's volleyball in Sweden and was one of their, uh, was, was one of their kind of great uh, middle blockers in his time for the Swedish national team. He coached me in my first season uh, and for, 45 degrees as like this, this, magical, this magical baseline angle on the block of, of if your arms are at 45 degrees over the net, which is very different than... 90 90 would be look at how high i jump and look at how far over i can reach take a picture and i'll, I'll post it later that, that's that's great you're going to get hit in the face a lot you're not going to take over a lot of court that's awesome if the players you're d- trying to block are three foot ten 
and the court is the ceiling. That's, that's perfect if that's, if that's who you're blocking. If, if, if you're facing Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory's Oompa Loompa team and, and the court is on the ceiling, you're going to be a dominant blocker if that's how you're blocking. And the same way of if your hands are straight up in the air above your head and you're blocking the back wall, awesome. You are very helpful for those two things, but not, but, but not so much for protecting your court. 45 degrees as a baseline angle for like when I'm closing to the outsides or kind of like when, I, when in doubt, this is the angle at which my arms should be over the net, 45 degrees. So kind of halfway between neutral in either direction, straight up or straight across. I just wanted to add that one part. Um, attacking, and this is, uh, this is many players' favorite part of the game. So uh, middle blocker attacking um, uh, at, the, at the more competitive levels, your tempo, so your cadence, sets the cadence for everybody else and every other sequence that follows. And that's really important to keep in mind. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean you need to go as fast as you possibly can. Um, if your team's running a fast offense or, a slow, or as slow as you can if the team's running a slow offense. But it's important to know that how you impact the game with your tempo is not not quite as valuable as how you impact the game for the points you score, but it's not far off. And that sets the pace for any other attack coming out of zone three behind you. So the tempo and pace at which you can run your attack allows for increases in the tempo and pace of the pipe attack or the, or the, the, the zone six attack coming from behind you. Uh, it, allows for, it allows for better time crises to be created for position four, position two, which um, that's a metal blockers kind of great foe is time, is how much time do I have to do these different things? I can, if I have time to block completely with the middle, land close to the outside and block over there, then, then I, can, I can commit all I want. I can, do, I can really do whatever I want because time is, time is my luxury here. If I don't have time, now I have to make decisions. And I would even, just as a little aside, um, so I know we're not talking about Libros, but when you watch elite Libros, they will often create time crises themselves by speeding up the, the pace of their first contact. And they'll do that intentionally. When you increase time, you decrease the amount of, so when, when you increase time on the offensive side of the ball, you decrease the processing time the defensive side of the ball has. If the ball is getting faster from my first contact to my second contact, the blocker on the other side has that much less time to evaluate that first contact, track where everybody else is attacking from, and gain information from the setter as to what their body looks like. Everything moves faster. And when everything moves faster and I have less information, it's less likely that I can make uh, educated decisions as a defender. So those are all wins from the offensive side of the ball. If you're, so as a middle blocker, the, the better tempo you can set, the more disadvantages you can create on the other side. Now, there, there, there is something that trumps speed in, in middle blocker attacking, and I would actually say all, all forms of attacking. There's, there's, um, or I, you could argue there's, there's two, like power would be one, but I think you can create power. You can, you can create power independent of tempo, but... Height, how high are you attacking over the net? 
that trumps speed. Now, at the youngest ages, uh, I, I've seen 15 and other under middle blockers that are faster attackers than the than than Gra Graham Fygras or Daniel Jansen Van Dorn or Lucas Van Burkle or Justin Duff or 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 other elite uh, Pierschenko elite middle blockers that Canada's had. Um, I, I've seen 15 year olds that are faster than them, but those 15 year olds couldn't score on them. Is what and and speed is an incredibly helpful tool. But if you, but if your speed involve uh, if, if if the result of your speed is a low attack, then uh, or or a lower attack than your than what you can best reach, then you have created a ceiling for your potential and what you're doing. If I can be fast, but the only way I can be fast is the ball is going to be low. Well, the ceiling as to what I can accomplish in this sport, I've dropped that a significant amount. It is. It is a lot easier to train a player to have success attacking the ball high and then speed them up later than it is to train a player to be fast and then try to get their arm to go up later. And, and, um, great point. The, the sp speed is, I, I, for, for a lot of middle blockers, their ability to attack quickly. The same way on the blocking side, if things are faster, you have less processing time. On the attacking side, the faster the ball moves, the less time you have to process as well. Often your, your inability to be a quote unquote fast middle blocker, that's not based on how fast you are, that's based on your processing time. So it's taking you longer to process, okay, the ball's been passed by this player, and, and it looks like this is where it's going to end up where the setter is. And I'm running this attack. Therefore, I have to attack to this zone and I have to be up in the air. That process, that's what's taking you too long. Not your ability to move two or three steps to get to that spot. Because I could clap and say, the second I clap, you need to move from the middle of the court to get up in the air to the setter. I could clap and, and, and we could race and we could see how fast you could do those movements. And if there were no other factors, you, you, you could be the fastest middle blocker on the planet. You can get there in less than a second. You can get there in less than probably less than half a second. You can get there really fast. You'd be blind. You, you wouldn't have gathered any other information. You wouldn't be able to adjust to if the setter has to move forward or backwards or left or right or off the net but you could get there fast. It's, you're not slow. Your processing time is moving slower than the ball and the information is coming. So you don't need to move your feet faster. You need to work on when the ball looks like this coming off my receiver's hands, what do I need to do? Or how do I orient myself before that first contact comes, which is I, I would say is, is the most important part for all levels, where am I before that first contact leaves that first contact player's hands? Where am I on the court that I can now get to where I need to get to faster than the ball's travel time? It's, so it's actually about where am I on the court before that first ball is passed, way more it is than how fast are my feet moving to get there. So in terms of, in terms of tempo and speed, 
I'd say those are the those are the most important things for all level of players to get to. And you, even if you look at international players, Olymp- Olympians, and specifically really tall and really dominant players, 6'10", 6'11", 7 feet, you know, players that are getting up, if, if, if uh, for listeners that are counting in centimeters, kind of 210 and above, 208 and above, um, or in, in, the, in the women's game, uh, kind of 195, 196 and above, or 6'4", 6'5", and taller. Um, we can work as we can work really hard to get you fast. There's a threshold somewhere in there. This, there is this is about as fast as you can get. And obviously, Brian, with your background uh, in, in 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 training athletes to be explosive and powerful, you you'd appreciate this. Somewhere in there, there's like this is about as much as as we can get from you. Yep. Um, safely and, and keeping you healthy, but um, so at. At that point, what it really comes back down to is how high are you attacking the ball over the net? If you need the ball to be set slower and higher because you aren't fast enough yet or you, or you, you aren't able to get from where you are starting to attacking fast enough, you have to work really, really hard to increase your pace, but you still need the ball that height. You need to be attacking at the height, at the height of your reach or somewhere at some point that's going to limit you from being the best attacker you can be. Um, and then like, and then, and then coming back to um, like, how do you attack most comfortably and what are you trying to accomplish with the attack? Um, frankly, for a lot of those, for a lot of those themes, um, they are, they are relationship with your setter dependent. <laughs> if your setter is, more comfortable setting a ball in a certain zone or a certain location, and they can put the ball to that spot better, then it's an easier adjustment for you to change where you're approaching by six inches to the left or three inches to the right. That's an easier adjustment because for you, everything else is the same, but you're just, you're just doing a slightly different location. That's a higher yield adjustment than trying to change who they are. And I think this is something that that's a like, great point. Like middle, middle blockers. We, uh, we, we can be, we can be, uh, we can be quite finicky with what we like and what we don't like. And every, every coach and actually every setter has seen, has seen what it looks like when a middle blocker doesn't get, doesn't get what they want and, the, and, and how that different body language can be exhibited. One of my like colossal pet peeves, uh, uh, is is when you have an unsuccessful middle attack and your middle blocker turns to the setter and gives them the thumbs up, which does not mean good. That means you need to put the ball higher, which is like, like you just put up the biggest flag in the world of telling everybody, this was not my fault. My setter is not good enough to give me what I want, which is, one completely not fair because because your setter didn't didn't touch the ball last you did like rule of thumb rule number one if, if the ball touches you last and then the other team gets a point you at the very least have to take 51 percent of the blame in all situations no matter what it touched you last Interesting. You're okay that's you at the very least, you have to take 51% of the blame. So that doesn't mean that 49% of the blame isn't on somebody else. I'm sure we can all think of a ton of situations where you touched the ball last and it really wasn't your fault. 
but you had the last opportunity to impact the ball and impact the game on that play. It might have been hard. It might have been unrealistic. It might have been tough. But, it, but you, you had the last opportunity to impact the ball. And, I, and, I, and as coaches, uh, we tell athletes this all the time, that the term fix it. Like if, if, we look at, if, if we look at our lives on a bigger picture outside of volleyball, how often do you get something that's not exactly ideal and you're told to fix it? Or you get something that's not quite great and you're told to fix it. Like that's a life skill. You need that. If you can't fix this, but the, bo- the ball is two and a half inches farther to the right than you expected it to be and slightly slower than you expected it to be and you can't fix that problem, we've got way bigger issues to deal with when, you're, when, when your sport life is done. But in this particular instance, that's a fix you can make. That's, you have two and a half inches of range to the right in your attacking shoulder. You can make that adjustment. Um, so, so from an attacking, from attacking perspective, um, how you approach, how you attack, uh, what your body looks like in the air should not be too different than how it would look from the other positions. It's really just the, 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 the location you're going to and the timing of when you're arriving there relative to the ball coming out of the setter's hands. If you're, uh, if you're, attacking, a, if you're attacking at a zone six as an outside hitter hitting a pipe, um, you're likely at, at, the, at the highest levels, you're likely on the last step of your approach when the ball is leaving the setter's hand. If you are attacking from the left side, from position four as an outside hitter, you're likely on the second step of your approach when the ball's leaving the setter's hands. And if you're attacking from the right side, you're likely on the second or third step of your approach. Well, in the middle, in a middle blocker's case, you're, for the most part, your steps are done. So that's a, that, that's a timing change. You shouldn't need to change what your arm looks like when you hit the ball. You shouldn't need to change too much how your body orients to your setter, uh, at, least, at least not differently than you would make those same adjustments if you were attacking from the other positions. It's, a, it's, it's timing and teamwork. So am I there at the time that my setter wants the ball or expects that I'm going to be there for the ball? And am I willing to be amenable to how I envision this in my mind might not be how it actually looks or might not be what gives us the greatest chance for success? And then beyond that, I mean, attack to zone five, attack to zone one, attack to zone six, Attack, attack every zone, attack every part of the hands, use every possible tool or trick that any player, that any attacker indoor and beach can use as well. Because at the end of the day, if what you're doing results in a point, then keep it in your back pocket. You might not use it all the time, but you're definitely going to use it some of the time. And you definitely want to have it. So yeah. in terms of attacking, that's what I look like. Okay, man, that's great. Like we covered so many different areas. Okay, I don't want to keep you too much longer. So um, I will ask one thing that we we didn't touch on as much, or maybe we can just touch on it just one more time. Um, There's two things, actually. Um, Reading. We didn't talk about reading when it comes to the block as much. Are there any specific cues you look for um, when it comes to reading from the middle blocker position? Uh. So this would be reading, reading the opposing team setter, reading the game, or just. Uh, I guess from from a so from a middle, middle from a middle blocker when that ball is served or when that ball is on the other side of the court, 
what should they be doing in terms of reading from the moment that they need to go and block and so forth? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so, um, right off the bat, when your team is serving and you were looking at the other team's offensive set, so what, what's in front of you? So when I say what's, what's in front of you, I mean, what location is my setter? Where's my setter? Are they in the front or in the back room? And what attacking options do they have and are likely to use? So if, you're play, if, if we're playing you know, 13 and under volleyball, the likelihood that they're going to run an in-tempo, you know, second-tempo pipe attack over top of their middle block or first-tempo attack, that's quite unlikely. Uh, and and, and, if, and if you see it, uh, please call me and I will fly, drive, train, whatever I can. I will find my way there. <laughs> I, same, I, same. I want to see it too. Yeah, we'll get we'll get the whole gang out. But um, but so right off the bat, what's in front of me should should dictate the depth that I have from the net. So what I mean by that is, um, I'll start with a handy cue that many coaches talk about when blockers are preparing to uh, are, are preparing at the net. They'll say, line your elbows up with your torso, and then and then make and then make the, the tips of your fingers touch the bottom of the net. And that's how far off the net you should be. That's a, great, that's a great baseline spot to start from. However, if I am if I'm in an offensive set where my biggest priorities are defending to the left and to the right of me, then I probably want to be farther off the net than that. The reason I want to be farther off than that is for a couple of reasons. One, right off the bat, and this is the ultimate coach's kind of, kind of coach's challenge, is that the farther away from the net you are, the better perspective you have on the setter to see what decisions they're making. And the better perspective you have to see the setter, the easier it is to read them. So coaches from the back of the court will often watch, or even like I, I, coaches that are doing video and statistics, will watch from the back of the court and say, wow, that setter is... You know, they have a lot of really obvious tells because from, from 17 meters away, you can see that their leg kicks out when they set the ball back, or you can see the angle of which their both elbows take, or you can see that their body has a slight rotation or their chin goes up or their back arches when they set the ball back. That's awesome if you're 17 meters away. But I don't know anybody that has 18 meter arms that can block anybody from 17 meters off the court. You're, you're blocking from two and a half to three feet away from this player, which means I'm not looking straight at them. I'm looking up into my left. And if I'm looking up into my left, I can see the right arm, the underside of the right arm, if they're, if they're jump setting. I can hopefully see the ball. I can see the right hand position, not their left hand position. I can see the ball at one angle. I can't see their feet because if I'm looking at, at their feet, I'm gonna have a really tough time blocking the ball in front of me. Um, I can see in my periphery vision where other players are, are approaching to and attacking, but my focus is still on what's directly in front of me. And I, I, I always love when, when I hear coaches say, look, as a middle blocker, you, you, you need to have your vision to be wide and see everything. That's not possible. I, can, I, I, I have an idea of reference. Like if, if someone throws a ball at me from my right, I might see it at the last second and do this embarrassing, like, Kind of, kind of protect myself maneuver. I have a really tough time catching that ball. I might be able to see general movements and shapes, but in a, but in a match format, no, 
I can't see everything. What I can see is what I'm looking at. And what I'm looking at is the underside of one arm, part of their torso, maybe a little bit of the ball, some bright lights in the background. It is hard. It is, it is way harder to have perspective on your setter from across the net from, from behind the net. If you know you're going left or right because you're not worried about the opposing side's zone three or zone six attack, start farther than that. I would even say go as, you can go as far as to say you can start almost a full arm's length off the net because that extra eight to 12 inches of space to see the opposing team setter is colossal in, in actually having perspective on what they're doing. That's right, right off the bat in terms of like helping your ability to read the opposing team setter. Um, the sequence ball setter, ball setter, uh, ball setter, ball hitter, I've heard a lot, which is the first thing you want to watch is the ball and see if it comes over the net and overpass. Then you want to watch the setter um, to see where, where they're setting the ball. Then you want to watch the ball to see where the ball is going to, whether it's inside, outside, close to the net, off the net. Then you want to see the hitter and you want to see what their hands are doing. And that, that sequence is great. I've always been a fan of it. Um, I, 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 if you are, if you are completely committed to going either in the left or the right, I would almost, I would almost look at it more like ball, ball as the sequence, because in the half a second, it takes from the ball to enter a setter's hands and then be attacked by the other attacker's hands. Four step, like to ask me to, to follow four steps in half a second is a lot. And, uh, and I'm not, I'm not going to say that I, that I, that the players at the top can't do it, but they all kind of blend into, in, into one, which is really just ends up being ball and ball. So where is the ball? And if it's crossing the net, are my hands in the right spot to block it? That's what's most important. Where's the ball? And then where am I in relation to the ball? So the ball's in the setter's hands. If I'm an extra six to eight, even as far as 12 inches off the net, then I have better perspective to see how that setter is going to deliver the ball wherever they're going to send it lead next. Or if they're going to play it right over on a second contact, I have better perspective for that. Um, and, if, and, and if the middle of the court wasn't my priority, I can start farther off the net anyway. So I'm okay with that. If the middle of the court is my priority, then I can start close. I can start elbows, elbows to my side, the tips of my fingers, because I'm not so concerned about how mobile I am moving left and right. I'm concerned about being strong and high up and over. And if I'm slow to the outside, well, we, are, we already determined that was the plan. That's what I'm doing. Um, in terms of re when, when people talk about read blocking, they're usually talking about going left and right. So if you start a little bit farther off than that, you give your shoulders more room to turn and close to the different directions. You allow your steps to, rather than being parallel to the net, to almost being angled back towards the net. So if I'm a little bit farther off the net, I can create, um, let's dig into my math. I believe it's isosceles. You can create an isosceles triangle where if, if you're farther off the net and you're approaching to a spot that's on the net, the, the triangle would be the net, your end location and you. So you're approaching on a slight diagonal, you're attacking the net, which means your finishing position is actually gonna be jumping a little bit towards the net, which is good because that's where the blocks come from. 
you, you don't get any blocks. And this is what, this is extremely important for blockers to understand um, at, at, at any level. Nobody gives you any points for closing. Closing a, closing a block is not the win. Affecting the attacker or blocking the ball, those are the only two wins. The second one being way bigger. If you've blocked the ball, you've won as a blocker. If you've affected the attacker's ability to do what they want with your block, if you've positively affected it, then you have helped our chances to get a win later. So either win now, get a block, or win later by affecting the attacker. Closing, there's no points for closing. You could close every single block in a match and never touch the ball whatsoever. And if you, if you go home that night and say, you know what, I closed every block. I think I had a pretty good blocking game. Well, the blocking stat sheet says otherwise, and the opposing team's attackers say otherwise too. Because they say, wow, you're, you're blocking everywhere and somehow you were nowhere. You have right. no points for closing. You get no points for attendance in blocking. You get points for points, period. So um, from talking about re-blocking, kind of the, to close there, and as, as obviously you could tell, I could, I could go on in this forever. But, yeah, uh, yeah, no, it's great. No, listen, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to keep you here too much longer, but listen, for my listeners out there, you know, I say this, like if you're driving, you're going to have to re-listen to this and take some notes because I've, I've been taking notes and this is, been extremely informative uh right off the back you can take some of this stuff and apply it to your gym and your team right away and i i can guarantee you'll see some change in, in the way that your performance is without a doubt so mike thanks so much man um in 30 seconds or less do you have any final words for our audience um if you're a youth athlete play sports don't just play volleyball play sports play all sports and uh, and, and actually take some time in looking at what am I learning in the other sports and how do those, specifically as to how your body moves and what your body does, what am I learning here and how does that relate to volleyball? Because there's a really good chance that it'll help. And if you're at the point in your sport career where volleyball is now the first thing that you're doing, um, play volleyball, period. Play all the skills. Play, play beach volleyball in the summer. You should be able to, you, you, sh you should be elite at first contact, second contact, third contacts. You should understand where every position goes. You should be able to hit high balls, low balls, fast balls, slow balls. You should be able to serve every type of serve. And that's not to put you on, put you on blast and say, you're not good if you don't. I'm saying you will be happier in your volleyball life if you can. And you will be better suited to do all the skills if you can do and try to do all the skills. So no skills should be off limits. And like, try to mix in fun a little bit here and there. It's a, uh, even for those, for those of us that it was or is a job, it's still a fun job and it's still a game to start. So you should right. treat it as a game. Right. All right, man. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate a, a fantastic episode, a ton of knowledge um, and things that you know we can take back with us. So thanks again. And for our listeners, I appreciate you guys tuning in to another episode of the Volleyball by Design podcast. Take care, everyone. All right. Cue the music. Look, are you at the stage you want to be in your volleyball journey? How would it feel to get clarity on your training and instead of taking months to get better, you could improve in weeks, if not days? When I was a young coach and player, I felt this way all the time. The truth is, after I got some great advice on how to be efficient, my learning curve grew exponentially. 
let me show you how to be more efficient and effective in this game. I invite you to check out CoachBTraining.com for more resources that you can use to take your game to the next level. I look forward to helping you reach your volleyball goals.